welcome to the third season of the Detours in Music podcast. I'm your host, Laura Rupel, and in the third season of the podcast, we will be focusing on faculty and staff at the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, where I am a student studying oboe performance in my master's program. Today, we get to talk to one of my favorite professors I've gotten to work with so far at CCM, Dr. Kevin Holtzman. I hope you enjoy. I am director of wind studies and the head of ensembles and conducting at uh, the University of Cincinnati's College Conservatory of Music in Cincinnati. And can you talk about your start in music? It's always, I think, hard to know when you start in music. Um, I, I've been in music as long as I can remember. Uh, probably my earliest memory was as a kid watching the original Fantasia movie uh, on VHS and um, just being mesmerized and wearing that tape out for, you know, watching it so many times. Um, my dad um, has always been in the kind of sound industry. And so I was always surrounded by music at all times. And it was something that um, growing up, especially younger, I never envisioned it as a career. I never knew it was a profession. To me, it was just the biggest source of joy um, in in my life. So I sung in choirs growing up because, you know, when you're young, you don't play a lot of instruments usually. Um, played the recorder and I don't know what grade, second or third. And um, every step along the way just was completely obsessed with it and with spending as much time as I could doing it because it never, it felt like a source of joy. It never felt like work or anything like that. So I remember uh, I sang a choir in the third and fourth grade and I was a soprano, boy soprano, and was so into it that I actually auditioned for a soprano solo, which was of course meant for a young girl um, and won it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look back and I think, oh my gosh, you know, how embarrassing, but um, it was, it was fun. And um, so I, I was, I was, always kind of obsessed with music. And I remember also seeing movies as a kid. And the thing I would remember about them more than more than the storyline or the names, I'm pretty bad with the names actually, was the soundtrack, was the music, and it would be stuck in my head forever. And, um, you know, back, it, back then, I, I say, as an older person now, um, you there was no like easy way to find those soundtracks unless you were buying them at a store. Um, and so all I had was my memory of it. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of this, this thing that, that stuck with me and, and was always in my head. So in the fourth grade, um, that's when we had our kind of instrument petting zoo at school and they offered us a chance to choose our instrument. Like any fourth grader has any business knowing what they're supposed to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, um, the instrument that I don't know if I picked it or if it was suggested to me or, or whatever was the clarinet. And um, so I, that was the first major instrument I learned. And I remember just absolutely loving it. I'm sure my parents didn't um, at that time, like most young parents don't. Um, but um, that I, we, we had our little red standard of excellence book, the first standard of excellence book. And I, within a month, went through the whole book, learned everything, got the next one, got the next one, got really far ahead. And so my first band 
director um, at that time said, oh, well, we need someone to play oboe, <laughs> you know, because what fifth grader is really going to play oboe? Yeah. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I thought I had already mastered the clarinet. Like I know it all already. So I moved on to the oboe and I learned flute at the same time because of course the fingering system is almost identical. Um, and then the next year they said, well, actually we need a French horn. So I played the French horn um, and then I played the trumpet and then I played the saxophone. And at a certain point it became obvious to me that one instrument uh, was not me. It wasn't gonna, you know, I, I didn't identify with one instrument, I identified with, with all of the instruments. And so um, that's, kind of, that's kind of how I got my start in music. And um, I eventually did, um, uh, the first lessons I ever took in music was in high school when I was a junior in high school. So I started pretty late actually with formal training and that was on clarinet because at that point it was, it was time to pick one. Mm -hmm. I remember um, you mentioning once that you had played kind of all of the instruments. Um, about at the same level. And I thought that that was a really good um, and unique experience for a director to actually like know what it takes, um, at least like the basic level of all of the instruments. And I had a similar thing in middle school where I felt like I had mastered clarinet and mastered all this stuff. So I was like, I need a harder one. And my director did not want me to play a bow, but I was like, no, like I got it. Like I need something hard finally. My most distinct memory of the oboe, I have, this, I have this really funny picture of myself playing it too in fifth grade that I just, it just, I found it recently, or I think my aunt sent it to me, um, is my, but my, my, my most distinct memory is how much my face hurt mm. when I played it, because I'm sure I had reads that were way too hard and they were store-bought and terrible. And so it was not hard for me to say, okay, I'm going to move on to something else. When was it that you realized that you wanted to pursue music as a career instead of just as a hobby? Oh, it took me a while. Um, I think, you know, I became very interested in, in conducting um, my junior year of high school, really before that. But, you know, um, I was in the marching band and I marched mellophone and then baritone. Um, and I always really admired the drum majors, the, the people, I think in Ohio, they call them field commanders, um, the people on the field conducting the students mm -hmm. and became really, really obsessed with that and learning how to do that in a way that I was not ever obsessed with playing any single instrument. Okay. And for me, this is all in hindsight. I didn't consciously think any of this at the time, but to me, I think that was the moment that I became truly obsessed with music. It was always part of me and a huge part of me and, um, and really integral to my life, but I never really felt obsessed. Like this is something I have to do. Like this is like breathing mm -hmm. until I learned to conduct and I conducted live musicians and had sound coming back at me. And it, it was just this, this feeling of rightness of like, okay, this feels so good. Like this is right for me to be doing and it doesn't feel like work and I'm desperate to do it and I really want to do it. Um, I think that's when I knew I wanted to go into music. Now, of course, um, I didn't ever really consciously think it at the time though. And actually to me, my, um, 
I would, I was in an international baccalaureate high school program and really, as far as I know, nobody else in my class was even thinking of anything in the arts for college. And so I almost felt at that time, like it, it was just going to be a hobby, no matter how much I loved it. Um, there were better things for me to do or more important things for me to do or things that would be a career. Um, I, I didn't really know professional musicians other than the teachers I had had um, who were my heroes and still are. But so in terms of when I knew I wanted to do music, I think it's, you know, I started taking lessons junior year of high school and that was really eye-opening because that was the first time I really sat down to master something. Mm -hmm. As I said, I had gone from one to the other at a basic proficiency level. Um, and and I will say most, most music educators do that as part of their training. They learn all the instruments at a, a basic proficiency level so that they can teach the instruments. Um, but um, when I got to college, I was a double major in math and music. Um, and I think it was basically within the first month of being in college that I realized I really loved one and really didn't love the other. And it was, of course, music that I loved. And the double major at first was kind of a means to an end. It was just a way to get lessons and play in ensembles at the music school where I was. But I think it was at that point that I decided I can do this as a job. Like I can do this as a career. And that's, I think, the moment of realization I had where I really started to take it seriously as, as a career, as something I really wanted to do. Um, did you major in music education since conducting is not an undergraduate major? I was, so I never envisioned myself as a music educator at the beginning. Um, I was performance major and uh, I, I dabbled with adding education as a degree because of course to become a, a college director, um, it's, it's really encouraged, if not in many cases seen as a prerequisite to have taught public school. Um, I ended up not doing it because I, I just already had an overload with the performance and with the math and also with um, trying to really master the instrument. I mean, at that time, I knew I always deep down wanted to be a conductor, but at that time I thought, well, this is my chance. I'm going to be a professional clarinetist. And I was really invested in that. And so um, I, uh, I, I feel like um, I should have majored in music education too. I took a number of courses in it. And at, at, like I said, at some point kind of dabbled in adding it, but it would have added a couple of years actually. So um, at that point, I really decided um, I would find my way without having that degree. But um, I always considered myself a student of music education. Um, because in reality, we're all teachers. Mm -hmm. You know, all of us as, as musicians are, are also te teachers, I think. Um, during your undergraduate degree, did you go straight um, to a grad program in conducting afterwards? Well, this, this is one of my detours, which we're <laughs> going to talk about later, I think. Um, no, I got completely burned out. And... Looking back, I realize, 
and we'll, we'll talk about more of this, I think, later, but I, I realized that I got burnt out because I was supposed to be conducting. And of course, anybody who's a great conductor has to master at least one instrument. Mm. I, I truly believe that, or be a rock star composer, um, but, but really master something musically. Mm-hmm. And so I knew I had to do that, but there were such limited opportunities to conduct, which was really my way of, of interacting with music in a way that felt organic to me. Mm-hmm. And like I said earlier, I think I was never a one instrument person. And so being so obsessed with and attached to one instrument, which really frustrated me, like it frustrates all of us, um, really burnt me out. So I decided probably by the end of my junior year, that I was done with music after my degree, that it was fun, that people with music degrees can go on to do medical school, law school, public service, business, anything. Mm-hmm. And that I had I had maxed myself out in music, that I was just kind of out of gas. And so after my undergrad, I went um, and entered a, a teaching program called Teach for America and went to Philadelphia and I taught math actually in uh in west philadelphia and with no intention whatsoever of ever returning to music always wanted it to be part of my life but but with i was really truly the definition of burnt out i think and everyone who knew me well enough including my conducting teacher um from undergrads really did say, I know you'll be back. And I pushed back really hard against that and said, no, no way, I'm done. And of course they were right. When I was in Philadelphia, it was really, you know, I needed it. I needed that experience, but it was a true moment of clarity for me. And sometimes I think you have to live apart from something to know that you can't live without it. And so I did that. And then my, the, the teacher I had had for conducting, Greg Hansen, uh, at University of Arizona, where I was at in school, um, he accepted me back basically as a as a master's student in conducting, and so um, I was really gracious for that opportunity to kind of start fresh, and that was the moment at which I knew I would never look back. And so I did my master's degree in conducting, and I still played the clarinet. I mean, it, actually, at that school, it was part of the degree to also take lessons for a year on an on your instrument and, and play in one of the ensembles, which was wonderful. So I played in the orchestra um, and kind of became friends with that instrument again. And because it wasn't the same pressure, it was more fun mm-hmm. at that time. Uh, it's so after that, at the end of my first year of my master's, the assistant director of the program who did the second ensemble and many, the third ensemble and taught conducting class and, and stuff had uh, to take a leave of absence. And I was um, basically given the opportunity to be the interim um, director, assistant director. And that lasted for a couple of years. Um, and so I went, I, I stayed there one year beyond my master's degree, basically as a teacher um, in interim capacity or adjunct type capacity, but with really full responsibilities. And that was really a huge and important step for me in experiencing the career. Mm -hmm. Um, It was really at that point that I realized that was probably my ceiling unless I went on to get a DMA. It's, 
in some fields it's it's you you can have kind of um experience equivalents to the dma in wind conducting specifically though um, because there are so few professional ensembles the the pinnacle of the career in in most cases is university professorship and so there really isn't equivalent professional experience so you'll find that most wind conductors band conductors um, at universities at least in the last 10 plus years range will will have their dma um, and so i decided it was really important if i wanted to take that next step to to have a full-time university job which which at that point was my my dream to um, pursue the DMA and I was uh, really, really um, gratefully accepted into Eastman School of Music for that degree, um, which again was a full circle moment because growing up I, I knew about the Eastman Wind Ensemble and I thought they were a professional group. Um, when I was in, you know, even in high school, I didn't ever think, oh, I could go to Eastman. I, I never imagined that kind of a thing and, um, and I'm so thankful that my teacher, Mark Scatterday, gave me that chance um, to do that. And that's where I did my DMAs and then and, and completed my formal education. Having that experience at that age of kind of where I am, of realizing like on the fence of what you want to do, um, having that experience, I'm sure, is something you can look back on frequently. <laughs> and have oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I really think that was one of the most important years of my life. I, I, you know, and I look back and I think, oh, how young I was. Um, I had the second level ensemble at the school, which was about 60, 70% music majors, about 30, 40% non-music majors, but really good musicians who were just majoring in other things at the school. And ambitious me, 23 years old, thought we'll do Maslenka's Fourth Symphony. And we did it. Yeah. You know, I mean, so, um, and I want to talk later, you know, about, about kind of my philosophy behind taking risks and, and doing that kind of thing. But it was absolutely the most important year of my life, I think. Um, one of maybe two of the most important years of my life to, to, ha to have that experience, really those two years, actually. Would you say that your biggest struggle in your undergraduate degree was not being able to conduct um, and feeling kind of detached from your like true purpose within music? I'm not, yes. Um, I, I think, I think the, the biggest like struggle that I can identify from that was that when I was an undergrad, I felt like life was happening to me. Like I wasn't living life. You know, I was kind of going through the motions of what other systems and people told me I needed to do and none of it quite felt um, really coherent to me like it never felt myself and so I think I felt really lost I mean of course in undergrad we are all finding ourselves as adults and kind of one of the unique things about being a music major is you're also finding yourself as a musician um, it's not, you know, your curriculum is so different in, in the fact that it is so specifically focused on a career oriented endeavor from age 18 in many cases or 17. Some people go early. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think that deep sense of insecurity and powerlessness 
that I know a lot of undergraduate students feel um, and just kind of lack of control over my circumstances, over what I was doing, the, the sense that I didn't know if it was right. I mean, I was so incredibly insecure at that time of life, like so many undergraduate students are. And um, without having the perspective I do now of, of the time, I really look back and I think I, I was not really living life in the same way I do today. I was, life was just happening around me and I was just basically trying to like do what I thought was right mm -hmm. to get to the finish line, whatever that was. And so of course not conducting, again, I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back, that's certainly, I think the source of my, my burnout from music because I had really maxed out my passion for one instrument at that time. It wasn't the source of my, my flame, if you will, mm -hmm. in music. So yeah, I, I really feel like um, my biggest struggle in, in undergrad, and I know a lot of people listening will share this, is just finding self-identity, mm -hmm. finding directions and, and, and knowing or feeling like I had to know what came next. And, and so those things for me really stick out again, all in hindsight um, from, from the undergrad. I think um, your point about not only are you finding yourself as a person, but you also have to find yourself as a musician um, really speaks to me because I still don't really know what I want to do in this field. Mm -hmm. um, but when I am in like a really great ensemble performance, it's like, oh my gosh, like I could never do anything but this. Um, but sometimes often when I'm in the practice room, I'm like, I don't want to practice <laughs> four hours a day for the rest of my life. Um, so yeah, it is hard to find um, clarity in both of those endeavors. <laughs> Do you have advice for younger students, um, maybe specifically in the times we're in now, but who are entering a undergrad program in music? Yeah, I have a, I have a number of things. Um, they're all kind of very simple. Um, my first piece of advice is more of a statement, actually. It's you're not an imposter. Yeah. Um, every single great artist I know has what we call imposter syndrome. And it happens, like you just said, on those days, you're in the practice room and you think, I've been like, I have fooled everyone into thinking I'm a real musician and I'm not. And I, when are they gonna find me out? When are they gonna discover that I'm not a, a musician? Um, you're not an imposter. If you identify as a musician and you're gonna work really hard to be a musician and you're gonna take the guidance of your teachers and, and take it to heart, there's a place for you in this field and you're not an imposter. And I can't tell you the number of times the number of hours I spent worrying that somebody would discover, you know, I'm not as good as I was portraying or as they thought, or as that one audition mm -hmm. made me seem and that I had to work so hard for that. Um, and, and, and thus, you know, I, I would never be able to do it. So um, that's step one is to know like you're in good company. Everyone around you feels that way, even and especially the people who are projecting the most confidence. Mm -hmm. um, the second piece of advice I have, and it kind of goes back to what I was just saying, is embrace discomfort. Um, it, it took me a long time in life to realize this, probably in, into my late 20s, to realize that the times that I look back most fondly on now are the times where I felt least comfortable mm. at the time, yes. which is a horrible feeling. Yeah. 
And there's such a temptation to, to shut down, to, to give up, to be, again, feel like an imposter, feel self-deprecating, feel like you can't do it. Um, and just know that discomfort, out of discomfort comes real growth and, and learning. And, um, you know, one of the things that, um, that is part of that discomfort is not always having easy answers. I think we come from high schools, a lot of us, including me, always having more or less black and white answers. Like you got this percentage grade on your exam. Good job. Um, you did this well on your assignment, on your homework. Uh, you got this score on your playing test. Uh, at the collegiate level, you're not going to have that. And at some points, that structure, that lack of structure feels extraordinarily overwhelming and helpless. Mm -hmm. Like you don't know what to do. And it's really uncomfortable. And every time I'm working with first year, second year undergraduate students, even sometimes first year graduate students who came from a different environment, um, there is a huge kind of growth between semester one and semester two. Mm -hmm. um, and what I try and tell everybody is if you, you know, not if you, when you make it through the first semester and you feel like how you're going to feel like that was a whirlwind. I don't know what happened. I was so unprepared. There's this magical thing that happens after winter break where you come back and everything feels right. Mm -hmm. And then, then you start to see the growth. But usually at the very beginning of, of a growth process, sometimes it seems like you're going backwards instead of forwards. Mm -hmm. So feeling okay with, with being uncomfortable and, and knowing that that's the right feeling also. You're supposed to feel that way. I, I wish somebody had told me that when I was an undergrad and going into undergrad, mm -hmm. um, because I think I would have been a lot less fearful mm -hmm. that I was doing something wrong. Um, the, one of the other things I, 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 I would say is embrace the adventure, embrace not knowing. I'm really type A person. I want to plan everything. And again, this was part of my burnout when I was an undergrad, I think, was I wanted to know that I would have a career. I didn't want to hope that I would have a career. Mm -hmm. I didn't want the, the, the fear of failure to be lingering over me, whatever failure means. Um, all the time. And, and so, you know, I think part of why I decided to, to, um, to take that detour when I did was because I wanted to do something that provided more certainty. Yes. And what we do is what's so fun about it. What always in hindsight, of course, mm -hmm. is the uncertainty is the adventure of hoping of thinking the next great thing is coming around the corner. Or I need to get ready for it. The next big audition's coming. I could get that job. That is, yes, it's pressure if you see it that way, but I think it's incredible opportunity and so exciting. Um, sometimes students say, um, you know, on the day of the recital or before it, you know, if they're in rehearsal, oh, I can't wait till my recital's done. And I think if we reframe that as, I can't wait to perform my recital. Like, I don't want it to be done because you will miss it after it's done. You know, I, all of that comes from a fear of, of not knowing. It comes from a fear of not knowing how you're going to perform, how people are going to perceive how you perform, um, how all of that's going to go. And 
to me, and this has been hard for me, I'm preaching to myself too right now, is embrace not knowing and be as present as you can and enjoying what you're doing when you're doing it. And trust that if you work really hard and you don't give up, the answers will come and they'll come as they're meant to. Whatever you believe in, they will come. Um, and so, so much of our work in this field is not knowing what's coming next. Um, the, another thing that I would say is say yes to every uncomfortable opportunity, mm-hmm. unless, you, unless you're overworked truly and not healthy, and then you need to learn to say no. So learn to say yes to, to everything you can and no to the things um, that you can't do. Um, the worst thing to me as a teacher that I can hear from a student is when I say, why don't you try this? Or like, I know this is challenging, but I think you can do this. And they come back and say, I can't do it. No. Um, usually I can coax them into believing in themselves to do it. Um, every great opportunity in life comes from, uh, in my experience, at least unexpected circumstances. And it's come from saying yes to something that I was initially inclined to think I either couldn't do or shouldn't do. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, say yes, again, within reason, take care of yourself, but say yes to things, even if you aren't sure you can do it. Mm-hmm. The worst thing that can happen is you learn from the experience. That's the very worst. And the best, nobody knows. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the most important piece of advice I have is to treat everybody around you well, even the people um, you don't initially click with, that you don't understand, that you um, that may even rub you the wrong way, or that you don't like mm-hmm. uh, on initial impact. Treat everyone well. Every single person with whom you interact is a potential ally, support, help, and definitely a future colleague in one way or another. And there is so much more important work to do than worry about what other people are thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the, the best thing I, I can say is treat everyone well, especially the people you don't initially feel any connection with. Um, and this, this includes staff members, wherever you are. This includes custodial staff. This includes people serving you food. This is everything. Treat everyone well when, as often as you can. And we all slip up sometimes and we all have those moments where, you know, we're insecure, but um, help comes from the least expected places in life. I really believe that. And the better you treat everyone around you, the easier that help is to come when you need that help or when you need that connection. Um, every gig, job, whatever I've ever gotten has come through somebody else who I treated well, even if it was just in passing. And um, it's so easy to get caught up in, in the day-to-day of, of that stuff. So there's that one. And then going along with it, my last piece of, of advice for um, a, a younger player is um, what, what I just alluded to. Don't worry about what other people think of you. As long as you know you're a good person and you're treating other people well, 
don't worry about what other people think. Um, and that is the hardest thing to do in life. And I am so guilty of forgetting that all the time myself and being really always kind of worried about what's going on. If you know deep down you're doing what's right mm -hmm. and treating people well and with respect, you have nothing to, I think, worry about in terms of that. Um, and the more you focus on you and not on the person next to you or across from you or in your audition room or in the pool, um, the better you're going to do and the more you're going to achieve. So we, we compare ourselves, of course, always, and it's great to have models to emulate and, and aspire to, but um, there's a place for everyone in this field. I don't think it's a, a zero sum game all the time. So treat everybody well. That's my last piece. Do you think if you had not gone back to school, would you still be a math teacher? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I definitely wouldn't. It was a wonderful learning experience, um, but no. I, I think what interested me more in, in doing that was actually, um, was the, the, almost the advocacy element of it was, um, giving back to the world and especially schools um, that were um, struggling that kind of were kind of full of more long-term subs um, and stuff like that in, in really um, economically challenged areas. Mm -hmm. And there's a great injustice, I think, that happens across this country in education in, and that it is so tied to wealth um, so often. And so I thought that was the best at that time when I didn't really have a direction, the, that was the best way I could live with purpose and do something meaningful um, when I didn't really exactly know what to do. I think if I wasn't doing music, I, I'd be doing one of two very different things. Um, one would be working at a zoo because I'm obsessed with animals, especially dogs, you know, either be a vet or work at a zoo or something. Um, that brings me a lot of joy. Although like everything else, when it becomes work, I think a little bit of the joy becomes, you know, more realistic. So, um, but I, I think the more likely path I would have taken was um, pursuing a law degree and, and doing something with that, whether it was in politics, advocacy um, or civil rights. Um, I really, I really think that those of us in this world who uh, are blessed with privilege and circumstances that allow us to pursue our dreams should do everything we can to help other people um, be able to pursue their dreams too and have equal rights and access and, and uh, kind of a fair shot. So that's probably what I would be doing otherwise. Has the focus of your um, professional life changed? For example, like maybe how you program um, or something like that? Yeah, um, quite a lot. And it, it, in terms of my profession, no, this has been my dream. A job like this has been my dream forever. And um, so that has never wavered. I mean, this is what I wanna do for the rest of my life. And I'm super happy to be doing that. Um, the focus though has certainly changed. And this happened a few years ago, really right at the beginning of, of my time here and my, my time as a full-time um, 
university director, um, I think it, it, it becomes clearer every single day that it is really important for us to use our voices again in places of power and privilege to amplify the voices of those who have otherwise been overlooked um, or pushed aside or, or not been given a chance to have their voices heard. Um, and so to me, so much of my, let's, you, you mentioned programming, so much of my thought process and programming um, is conscious of, in fact, about 100% of it is conscious of the music I'm programming and what it means to the world, what it means to, to the musicians, what it means to the people who wrote the music, what it means to the cultures surrounding that, um, what it means to the audiences and what they can learn from it. And so um, I, I think it's vital that we all work really hard to have representation in our music, in our programs, in our performances, in our every aspect of what we do, in, our, in the students we recruit. Um, I think it's really important that we have diverse voices involved. And we're all so well aware that for so long, um, there's been, there's been a real lack of diversity in Western art music, like not real lack, like almost complete lack of diversity. And it's not because there's not great music out there. It's because it was overlooked mm -hmm. or pushed aside or swept underneath the other music. And so I'm really passionate about having programs of music by composers that represent the world in which we live, amplifying um, people of color, amplifying um, non-white men, let's just say, and, and especially living composers who are not white men. And that's not to say that I won't program that music, but there is some absolutely, not some, a lot of absolutely incredible music out there today um, that if this wasn't my focus, and, it, and if it wasn't the focus of, by the way, so many people out there who are putting together databases and advocating, and the work is astounding, and it makes my life so easy, um, because it helps me acquaint myself with composers whose names I haven't heard before. And so I think, yeah, I, I think when I started this, my dream was to conduct all the classics and do all the big, huge works and, and you know, this kind of grandiose um, old school mentality of what a band director is and what a band concert is. And um, I think my focus has really shifted to um, making every program meaningful in some way. And, and making the, the, the representation meaningful mm -hmm. so that everyone in the audience and everyone in the ensemble for any given concert, or you know, hopefully a majority of the concerts can see and hear music with which they feel a personal connection in some way. And, and, and that's not at all something I ever studied in school. It was very academic. Um, of course, there were always discussions about programming and meanings behind programs, but those were kind of limited at that time to like anniversaries or special events. Um, 
And I think the most wonderful thing that's come out of really the pain of the last four years in the world and especially in this country and in our music community is that we are really um, learning to be so much more focused on how what we do actually does impact those around us and, and how our programming decisions um, uh, do that. So absolutely the, the focus of my programming, of my recruiting, of my curriculum um, is always evolving. And I, I think the really cool thing about doing what I do, uh, teaching, teaching it at this conservatory is that the students teach me so much and they bring in so many ideas. And, and so I feel like every year I'm totally changing my curriculum. Um, and I really actually hope that never changes. Maybe I hope it gets a little more slow so that I don't have to work all summer all the time. But yeah, to me, that's, that's kind of the change in focus um, in, in the career I've, I've had in these few short years. When you look back at your career, are there detour moments or just in your life that tied you to the, where you ended up today or? Yeah. I mean, the first, uh, the first major one for me was after my undergrad. And it was kind of that moment of realization of, I can't live without this. And, and, it's not really an exaggeration. I mean, I was really empty inside. I, I went, I remember when I was teaching there to every Philadelphia orchestra concert twice, both performances of the same concert they did, because I was just so incredibly um, needing that fuel, that, that kind of to, to fire, uh, fire me up inside. And so, um, but I will tell you that that was, the, you know, one of two, the two most important years of my life, because one, it, it taught me great perseverance, um, but it also made it so that I, I was, for, from that moment forward, completely convinced that I needed to do this. This was my career. This is what I am going to do. And um, no matter what obstacles come in the way, no matter how bad the days are, doing this professionally because we all have really hard days even you know people in what are the our great jobs um that it was the right thing to do the other detour of course um for me at least was um at at the end of my doctorate um and i hope this is also instructive to people too i finished all my coursework in two years and uh got my degree in hand essentially de facto after passing my oral exam and comprehensive exams in October of what would be my third year of the DMA. And everyone in my program from, from that studio at Eastman had by their third year a job and just finished their degree remotely. And I had probably applied to 30, 40 of them and I didn't get one. And um, that was a real moment for me of, of self-doubt, introspection of, of, and it was the only other time in my life I thought maybe there is not a place for me in this field. Um, and um, 
throughout that whole year, I even applied like the third, during that third year, when everybody else prior to me had had a job lined up, had been in one. Um, so I felt really inadequate. Like I was letting everyone down. Like I hadn't done what I was supposed to do. Like, um, this was not going to work out for me. I could, like I was an imposter basically. And I got all the way to May without a job lined up, which means there were no more tenure track jobs out there there was only visiting positions which are great by the way and there were only um and even many of those i applied to and they didn't work out and um at that point i had full disclosure ordered lsat study books i thought well this is it i mean if i can't get a job after a year and a half essentially of applying to jobs and I had interviews along the way and there were so many various circumstances behind all that um, that it wasn't going to work out. And my teacher always told me it will. Yes, it will, stay the course. You're, you're, gonna, get, you're gonna get the job that's right for you. Mm-hmm. And when you're on the other side, you think easy for you to say. Mm-hmm. But now I have to say that to students myself and I have real evidence. <laughs> to say I applied to maybe 50, 60 jobs before I got a call from CCM saying we have a last minute opening, will you apply? It was, it was a publicly posted job, but I got a, one of the personal invitations and that was through connections mm-hmm. and good word of mouth. And so I applied for the job, I interviewed for the job and um, uh, was given the job. It was a visiting professorship it was the visiting assistant director of wind studies and i just um think about that year of my life and luckily it wasn't such a detour in this in the, in the sense that i was still conducting i was still making music um i was still fulfilled but there was always that lingering sense of what did i do wrong like where did i go wrong um what is wrong with me and that was the moment again of of me kind of veering off that path that I thought after I had gone back to my master's, I was straight on forever of I'm gonna do this and and have this career that I really doubted myself and was actively starting to plan contingencies for, um, you know, if that had been the case. Mm -hmm. And so um, to me, that's kind of the second major detour experience I've had in my life. And I hope it's a lesson to people that um, there is really something to be said for perseverance, Mm -hmm. even after you've been rejected from 50 jobs, because the 51st might be the one Mm -hmm. or the 52nd or the 53rd. And some people the the right job comes around at the right time and it happens for them instantly. And I was watching that happen around me to people and I look back and I think, well, this was the perfect job for me and it was the right job for me and the other ones probably weren't. And that's why I didn't get them. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of my second major detour story. And it it was really a a tough time, actually. How do you define the detour moments for your life? I mean, to me, they were the most formative Mm -hmm. times of my life. And which is, which seems of course, really counterintuitive. You think you're going to learn the most about yourself and about music when you're on your path. Mm -hmm. 
Um, that's, that's what you're doing. You're training for one thing. And um, I, I learned along the way a lot of life perspective. I, I learned how to deal with, we'll call it failure. I don't think it was failure. I think it was just timing, but um, failure, what seemed like failure over and over and over again. I learned to deal with rejection over and over and over again and find within myself that, that not self-confidence, but that passion that kept me going. Mm -hmm. And there are times when I still draw on those moments and, um, and compare how I'm feeling at any given moment now to how I felt at any given moment then. Mm -hmm. And to me, um, to me, while they were, like I said, the hardest, most uncomfortable times you experience are the most formative. They're the times of most growth. Those were the times of most growth for me as a person. And I don't think that's really separable from as a musician, especially in, as a conductor. I think um, me learning that has been really instructive and me struggling through those times um, had made me a more um, compassionate person towards myself, but especially others, mm -hmm. a more understanding person and somebody who um, is less afraid of failing. Because when you do something so many times and you still get up, mm -hmm. um, you realize that it's okay to fall along the way and we're all going to do it many times yeah. so that's I kind of define them them as really my the, the most important times of my life I've ever experienced yeah and I I know now I'm really grateful to have had you on um, I assume everyone has had um, experiences that aren't on their resume or aren't on their Facebook page but of course um, we perceive everyone as having great and easy times mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's always um, it puts a lot into perspective to hear that no matter like how easy everyone makes it look, because um, you did get the job like the year after you graduated. But mm -hmm. what we don't know is that um, on your end, it still seemed really late. <laughs> or it, was it was extremely late. I mean, there were maybe three or more left that summer. Yeah, and so I just tell people don't give up. Mm -hmm. If you believe in, in your dream, do not give up. There, we're all gonna have detours. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I know that's a hard thing to hear when you're at rock bottom and you feel like nothing's going right, but do not give up. Um, what are your current goals for your field? Oh, my field is changing so rapidly all the time. Um, you know, I consider myself a musician and then a conductor and then a specialist in wind conducting. Um, so if we're considering my field wind conducting, mm -hmm. um, which it is, um, there is so much exciting new music coming. It's actually overwhelming. Um, just how many brilliant young composers there are out there with great ideas and our pedagogy is changing all the time. Um, my goal is to always be flexible and adapting to the, that change to always be learning, to always um, be not just willing to listen to other perspectives, but to adopt them and try them. And um, that that's something that I think is really necessary. We were a field for a very long time now that was built on tradition. 
and um, just about every band director at one point in our, and not just about every band director at one point in our history, even at the collegiate level looked the same. And things are so exciting in that they're changing now. And I have a lot of colleagues out there, some I interact with a lot, some I just basically follow on social media because there's just so many of us um, who are sharing really cool things all the time that are always constantly making me think. And so, I mean, my goal is of course to be one of the leaders in the field and to create great music and to commission um, great composers to write music for us, to leave a legacy of not just conducting students who are, are really uh, successful, but of ensemble musicians who are ready to go into the field and be successful on day one in, in their ensemble job, but to kind of lead the way as well as, as the next generation. Um, it's kind of the, the, the cycle of, of uh, what we do on, on any instrument in any field is there's always has to be leadership to take over um, the mantle of steering things in a good direction. So I wanna steer um, this profession into continued relevance, to embrace technology, to embrace different ways of reaching audiences, to be more accessible to more people, um, and um, to continue to tie what we do in our little ivory tower to the community as a whole, to the people around us, to the communities more, most importantly around us, and to, to not just keep the status quo because it, it's not good enough, but to usher in a, a kind of a new era of excitement about making wind music um, and connecting with people in that way. So that's, that's kind of my goal for where I want to, to take things. And this kind of goes along with my don't be afraid of failing mentality. It's this quote from um, David Bowie that I really like. There's actually, there's a couple quotes that I could share, but I'm going to share this one. Um, and it's about um, refusing comfort. And, and, and David Bowie said, if you feel safe in the area you're working in, you're not working in the right area. Always go a little further into the water than you feel you're capable of being in. Go a little bit out of your depth. And when you don't feel that your feet are quite touching the bottom, you're just about in the right place to do something exciting. And I want all, the, especially the students um, and future professional musicians out there listening to try your best, I know it's really hard some days, to embrace that, embrace taking risks, embrace not knowing what's coming um, because that's when great things are gonna happen to you. While I edit the podcast, I always take notes on specific things that the guests shared. And with Dr. Holtzman, I have a whole page full of notes of great pieces of advice and words of wisdom. So I just wanted to say thank you again, Dr. Holtzman. It was my pleasure to interview you, and I'm so happy that my audience gets to hear what you had to say. I'm really looking forward to the rest of season three. Any CCM students listening, please feel free to reach out to me if you have a specific person you would like me to interview for a future episode. If you'd like to keep up with the podcast, there are multiple ways you can do so. First of all, you can go to our website, which is detoursinmusicpodcast.weebly.com. You could also subscribe to our YouTube channel, also called Detours in Music Podcast. We also have a Facebook page and Instagram account where you can like and follow us. 
The Detours in Music podcast is available everywhere that you listen to podcasts, but on Apple Music podcast apps, you can subscribe and rate us. If you ever want to get in touch with me and give more direct feedback, you can email me at detoursinmusicpodcast at gmail.com. As always, thank you for listening, and I hope you catch the next one.